Judges 10, 17 through eleven twenty eight. Hear now the word of God. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and the Jordan, and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the land of Israel, into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. 
the Lord, the, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Humans want to be gotten. And by that, I mean humans want to be understood. They want to be known. We hate it when our words are taken out of context. We don't like having to explain ourselves over and over again. We become frustrated when our actions are not seen in the proper light. If others would just hear our words correctly, if they would just interpret our behavior factually, then there will be a mutual understanding. Then there could even be a thriving relationship between the two. And I mention this because this is our desire, because there's a man in the book of Judges who has been wildly misunderstood. And I'm sure you know which man that is. Church history has not been kind to the man Jephthah, mainly because of the vow that he makes, which will be next week, a classic Mother's Day sermon on that vow. Now, this man is seen as one of those judges that depict the devolution of the Old Testament church. And as, as Jephthah went, so went the people of God at that time. One man summarized Jephthah this way, Jephthah is all muscle and no brain. If Jephthah were alive today, he would no doubt redirect our eyes to the text to allow the context of his words and the script of his actions to tell the true story of the history of the man. And certainly, he would redirect us to the scriptures, not because he is seeking some vindication from us supposedly earthly judges, no, but so that we would see how God uses him to point us to Jesus. Through an examination of this text, we will see Jephthah as a reliable historian and a spirited head. And from this examination, then, we will appreciate Christ as the historian and Christ as the head. A true judge is both historian of God's redemption and head of God's redeemed. Every time we deal with history, we are responsible to read the story accurately. And the background here, we see in the story of Jephthah, some similarities, and, of course, some differences with Abimelech. We recently covered uh, that material over Abimelech, and we saw that the evil Abimelech was an illegitimate son, being the son of Gideon's concubine. Likewise, we see in this text that Jephthah was the product of an affair that his father, Gilead, had had. As illegitimate sons, these were both outcasts. And, interestingly enough, both ended up ruling part of Israel. They differ, however, in that Abimelech was a wicked tyrant who inserted himself as a ruler, whereas Jephthah was called by God and had the Spirit of the Lord upon him, which is what verse 29 says, which I hadn't read, but I, I will now. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And so why does Jephthah come onto the scene. Read again with me Judges 10, 17, and 18. 
Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so the problem before the people of God here was the encamped and armed Ammonites. Afraid to be overcome by these Ammonites, they asked this question, well, who is there to fight for us? Who is there who will begin to fight against these Ammonites? We need a leader. Thus enters Jephthah, who has enough military might to make him the top candidate. There's just one problem. And for these Gileadites, it is a pretty big problem. And it's not so much him as it is his mom. His mom is a prostitute. Do I need to say any more about that? I don't think so. And so what this means is that he comes from, uh, he has a bad reputation, a very shameful reputation, a dishonorable past. And what would it say of the people of Gilead to have an outcast as their head, as their leader, as their fighter? But as they say, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so the people of Gilead have to swallow their pride and beg to return the one they drove out wishing never to see again. The people of Gilead do to Jephthah what Israel did to the Lord in the early part of Judges chapter 10. Just last week, we considered that text. As Israel forsook the Lord for seven gods, you recall, Gilead here rejects Jephthah. As Israel was distressed in spirit and so called upon God, these men, obviously distressed by the impending battle with the Ammonites, they call upon Jephthah. And as Israel repented to God, asking God to save the day, these men come to Jephthah. And you recall the Lord's answer to the Israelites, you followed other gods, you forsook me, and you want to come back? You want to crawl back to me? And here, Jephthah says, didn't you reject me? Didn't you hate me? Didn't you drive me out? And now you, now you want me to be your leader? And as the Lord conceded in Judges 10, so Jephthah now concedes to lead them. This Jephthah story is an enacted story of Israel's relationship with the Lord in the previous chapter. It's a very important point to make. The facts that Jephthah had the Spirit of the Lord upon him in Judges 11, 29, and that Jephthah is here the Yahweh figure, the Lord figure, should help us to see his identity as historian and head in their truly redemptive light. And to be a true historian, you have to know your facts. What kind of historian doesn't know his facts? A bad one. And we have to ask, is Jephthah's historical account, as one man said, an ignorant man's bold bluster? Is he just trying to bluff the the king of the Ammonites here with his long history, his long recounting of the history of the fight that we, we read? And many today will challenge Jephthah, say that Jephthah didn't get his facts right. And so, was he a bad historian? No. Remember, Jephthah begins this history lesson because land is at stake. If a squatter comes into your home, you, 
as the homeowners say, you didn't buy this land. You don't have the, the papers. This is not your property. This is not your land. This is my land. Get out of here. And if you're in a state that's not like California, you'll have a strong case against them. That was a bit of a joke, but it's also reminiscent of what's going on in California in squatters, but okay. This Ammonite squatter says to Israel that Israel is on his land and that Israel had taken this land. And so the question is, is the king here simply taking back what is already his? No, as the real facts of history show. Real history cares about real facts and all of the nitty-gritty details of history, every jot and tittle of history. So, is, so Jephthah recounts the, the conflict in the past few hundred years. Once Israel left Egypt, and you can read about these, this recounting in the book of Numbers, but once Israel left Egypt, they respected the lands of Edom and Moab, and so they asked for permission to pass through as they wandered the wilderness. You might remember that. And you might then also remember that access was not granted. It was denied them. What does Israel do? Israel, respecting their land, did not wage war against Edom or Moab, but went around. And so it's the same thing with King Sihon, which we read in Psalm 135. King Sihon, the king of the Amorites, if you're beginning to, to not pay attention, pay attention, wake up, Amorites, very important, they asked King Sihon, for permission to pass through this land of the Amorites. This is the land in question. This is a 50-mile piece of land between the Arnon and Jabbok rivers. I'm sure you know the area well. King Sihon immediately attacked. There you guys are, by the way. It's good to hear you. King Sihon attacked the people of Israel, and Israel defended himself, and by God's powerful grace, Israel won the land. And so, All that to say, Jephthah, in fact, is saying, why are you calling it your land? The land was Amorite, not Ammonite. We're going to get those two words mixed up, aren't we? Before today, you might not have known the difference between Amorite and Ammonite. But for Jephthah, there there were significant distinctions. He knew them. He knew the differences. And he says, the Lord drove out the Amorites and gave that land to Israel. It is our land. It isn't your land, O king of the Ammonites. It was Amorite. We took it because they came after us. We conquered them. That land is ours. And, as he says, it has been ours for hundreds of years, 300 years from this point. Why didn't you try to get this land at that time? He's asking. And so there's a final piece of history here, of Jephthah's history lesson, that some see as evidence of Jephthah's ignorance. And if he's ignorant, he's not a good historian. If he's not a good historian, he doesn't picture for us Christ as historian. That's the whole point of all this. Jephthah mentions Chemosh as the god of the Ammonites. Now, two quick questions before us. Does Jephthah believe that Chemosh is a real god who really gave them land? Verse 24 says... Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? Well, let me answer that question with a question. Does the psalmist in Psalm 95.3 believe that there are other gods when he says that God is above all the gods? No, of course not. We all know, as 
The psalmist in Psalm 96.5 says that all the gods of the people are idols. But of course, the king of the Ammonites believed that this god had given him the land. The second question is, did Jephthah get it wrong by calling Chemosh the Ammonites' god? We all know, don't we, that Chemosh is the god of Moab, and that Milcom, or Moloch, is the god of the Ammonites. Well, do we all know that? So that's the challenge. Jephthah, you got your, you got your god wrong. Chemosh isn't the, the god of the, the Ammonites. He's the god of Moab. He's a bad historian, bad picture of Jesus. But Jephthah actually considered this king of Ammon as the ruler of both Moab and Ammon, one who has served both Chemosh and Moloch. In verses 25 and 26, we see that Jephthah saw their leader as coming from Balak. You might know that name, Balak, who was king of Moab. Remember Balak, he sent for Balaam, the prophet, to come and curse Israel, but instead Balaam blessed Israel. So Balak is the king of Moab, and Jephthah is saying, that's where you're coming from, king of the Ammonites. That's, that's your history. And we already saw that Jephthah respected the land of Moab and Ammon. So the question was Amorite land, not Ammonite land, so go back to your land. That's the, those are the um, spark notes version. Okay? I know that was a lot. But this whole text is a lot of history recounting. What are we going to do with it? Well, perhaps the Lord has given us a history lesson for a reason. It takes a little work, as getting to the bottom of a history tends to do, and there are certainly more questions that need to be answered. But this is important, because Jephthah, the man with this checkered past, is a true worshiper of the Lord, and is a true historian of the Lord's deeds, a much better historian than we are. He proved himself much more reliable, knowing the history of God's redemption, than certainly we do. And although a sinful creature, Jephthah points us to Jesus as the historian. Jesus, who exegetes both the Father and us. Now that word exegete, some of you might be familiar with. If you hang around long enough, you're going to hear that word over and over again in this context, in this church. To exegete means to draw the meaning from the text out of the text. It's allowing the text of Scripture, or any text really, but our concern here is Scripture. It's allowing the, the text of Scripture to speak for itself. And the opposite of that is eisegesis. Eis means into. And so what we're doing in eisegesis is we're saying, here's what I want the Bible to say. So I'm going to read those presuppositions, those faith commitments, that worldview, what I want it to say, into the text. Oh, look, the Bible says it. So you are twisting the scriptures in eisegesis. But exegesis means draw out the meaning of the text, to explain clearly what the meaning is. And the Son exegetes the Father. The Son of God knows the Father perfectly. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, no one knows the Father except the Son. This is, this is Jesus' own words. No one knows the Father except the Son. How can he know the Father better than anyone else? Because he has been eternally with the Father. In fact, John 1.18 points to this. 
that the only begotten God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, has made known the Father. The one from above has come down and he has explained the Father to us. He has shown us the Father through his person, through his work. Not that Jesus and the Father are one and the same person, but Jesus' mission was to explain the Father and his will of salvation through him, Jesus Christ, to the world. And as he knows the Father perfectly, he knows the Father's plan. Sometimes we call this the covenant of redemption. Or if we want to be fancy, we use the Latin word pactum salutis, the covenant of salvation. That covenant from eternity past, whereby all the members of the Trinity decreed to save a people, to redeem a lost people. Before the foundation of the world, before there was even day one of creation, the triune God agreed with one another to save the elect. So the Son knows the Father. He exegetes the Father. But Jesus makes known the Father to us and makes us known to ourselves. And everybody seems to be on a search to find himself. I've got to go find myself. Well, you're right there. Just look in the mirror. You'll see yourself. But that search will always take you to a dead end if it does not begin with the triune God who knows you. Jesus knows us. In John 2, it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to man. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He didn't give himself over to this collection of men because he knew that those men, after he had cleansed the temple, would try to kill him. So he evaded them because it wasn't his hour of crucifixion. In Mark 7, he knows when the people honor him with their lips, but when their hearts are far from him. He knows that it is the heart and not the hand that defiles a man. He knows us. He knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. And as he exegetes our hearts, the Spirit exposes our sins to us. And some of us see our pasts. Some of us see our personal histories as more shameful than the personal history of Jephthah. And as this word of God, this Christ, breathes his spirit life into our hearts, he reveals the gracious, the mighty, and the transformative work of God in us and through us. And as the people of God read our stories of salvation, our testimonies, how God has been working in our lives, as people read those stories, they're actually reading God's history. They're reading how God is using you for his glory. Now, revisionist history was not only a problem in Jephthah's day. It was a problem in the New Testament and beyond. You recall the Jews' words to Jesus in John chapter 8 when they say, we have never been enslaved to anyone. You scratch your head and say, do you even believe the words that you just said to Jesus? Because you know, come on, you know that there were those Egyptians and they enslaved you for 430 years. You do know that, right? You call Abraham your father, but... God promised Abraham that you would be enslaved for 430 years. And they weren't the only ones that you were enslaved to. So they're rewriting history. We were never enslaved. Or in 2 Peter 3, the false teachers, the scoffers of the day, argued that the day of the Lord would not come because, apparently, nothing had changed since the start of creation. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3, they deliberately overlook. They intentionally, purposely overlook the facts of creation. 
the flood and redemption. They are rewriting history to prove their point. People rewrite history today to deny the resurrection. Two weeks ago, we considered two theories, the swoon theory and the hallucination theory. Apparently, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He was just badly injured, and he was presumed dead and placed in the grave dead, presumed dead anyways, and the cool of the air revived his body, and he was able to get that gravestone open, maybe with a little bit of help from his disciples. Come on now. Or the hallucination theory, that the disciples didn't actually see a physically resurrected Christ, but they simply hallucinated. They really wanted Jesus to be risen from the dead. And you know, the mind can be a powerful thing. So they thought he was risen from the dead. In reality, he wasn't. So people rewrite history all the time. The LDS rewrite history to make a way for the Book of Mormon. Did you know, they say, that after the first century, there was a great apostasy. And this great apostasy was necessary in order for the Book of Mormon, many, many years later, to be given to Joseph. Because if you have a corrupt Bible, since the Bible wasn't preserved, if you have a corrupt Bible, then you need another word, another testament of God's work. Well, that's when Angel Moroni pops up and gives a vision to Joseph Smith Jr. and gives him another testament. Now, not all the Bible is corrupt according to the LDS, but a lot of it is. So the rewriting history. Or Justice Samuel Alito, in his majority opinion on the Dobbs-Jackson case, said that, quote, Roe either ignored or misstated this history. It is therefore important to set the record straight. He had in mind the revisionist mistaken idea that a right to abortion was present in the Constitution of the United States. The word hogwash keeps coming in my head. I just want to say it. Well, I did. That ever-faithful NPR in June 2022, I was sarcastic, okay, rewrote colonial history, saying, in colonial America, abortion was considered a fairly common practice, a private decision made by women and aided mostly by midwives. No, read your history. Don't give me that revisionist stuff. People rewrite history all the time. They rewrite past events. They rewrite present narratives, maybe even present conflicts, as an attempt to push their own agenda. But the people of God listen to the Word of God. They listen to the text of Scripture. They listen to the authorial intent from God and the earthly writers who have been inspired by God to give us real history, real events, real facts, grounded in Jesus Christ. And so as little historians, doesn't matter if you're 90 or if you're one day old, as little historians, we study God's history. We study God's history in the Bible. We study God's history in church history. We study God's history in our own personal history. Maybe you can challenge one another. I'm challenging you now, but you're not going to meet this challenge right now. If someone asked you to chart God's story of salvation through all the covenants, could you do it? Do you see how God has worked in history? Let me give you a little teaser here. Do you know the two covenants, covenant of works, Genesis 2, 16, 17, and then Genesis 3, 15, the covenant of grace, which has its several administrations? 
with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the New Covenant. Do you know that that general way that God is working from Old Testament to New? You would do well to know that. That's God's history told, told to you in the Bible. Do you know the general contours? Or do you know some of the particulars? I recently watched this presentation from, I think it was a a 10-year-old boy, and he identified Jesus in every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It was a a one sentence, one phrase of where Jesus is exemplified in each of those books. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of walls. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, the righteous branch. In Lamentations, the weeping prophet, and on and on and on. What an encouragement it was to watch this presentation from this young boy who would just tell us a little bit about Jesus in every book of the Bible. That's him knowing, beginning to know, his Bible history. Do you know your church history? You know that God has not just begun his great work in this generation. Do you know some of the creeds and councils in the early centuries of the church? Do you know some of the pivotal moments in church history, the the East and West split, the medieval period, the Reformation, the Puritans, and even now how God is working today? You would do well to know those because God is working throughout that history. He didn't just stop working at the cross and resurrection and then say, okay, I'm leaving history up to you guys. Well, God is working in his people every generation. And you would do well to be a historian of God's church history. Do you know your own personal history? I imagine you do. How God has worked in you. How God has saved you specifically. Do you have a testimony that you can share with someone? challenge you to come up with a testimony, with come up with a presentation of three to five minutes or an elevator uh, presentation. You just have, you know, 60 seconds with that person in the elevator if you want to give a testimony. Can you come up with something like that? And not just your personal testimony. Do you know the testimonies of your brothers and sisters? Do you know how God has been working in them? Maybe how God saved them. And if you forget, you can ask them again, and it would be a great time to um, recount that wonderful work of God. And not just how God has worked to save them, but how about how God has been working during their affliction? How God had brought them out of that conflict? How God had provided a job for them? How God had safely uh, made a way for them to travel from one state to the next? Do you know personal histories of your brothers and sisters. Maybe you don't know very much of your Bible history. Well, there's a remedy for that. Read your Bible. Maybe you don't know church history well. 
There's a remedy for that, too. There's a lot of good church history books. We have some in the library. Read them. Maybe you don't know the history of one another. There's a remedy for that, too. Just talk with each other. The Lord is mightily at work. And remember the people's question here. Who will be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead? We remember that the one that they chose really wasn't their first choice. Jephthah was raised by a harlot. We don't need to sugarcoat it. Jephthah, humanly speaking, never should have been born. Jephthah's dad never should have laid eyes on another woman. Jephthah was an outcast. His brothers treated him as one who never should have been born. It was only when he could be used by them that he became useful, that he had a a purpose in life, really to spare them from more affliction, to save them. And Jephthah was rejected. He reminds his brothers that they hated him, that they drove him out for good, didn't want anything to do with him. And Jephthah was homeless. Israel wasn't his home. He was forced to live in the land of Tob. Again, in an area I'm sure you know, city northeast of Gilead. It was a desert place that you do not go to unless on purpose. Interestingly, in 2 Samuel 10, the Ammonites, remember that's who we're talking about here in Judges 11, the Ammonites hire 12,000 men from Tob to fight David. They're mercenaries. This is the land that Jephthah hung out. This is where he lived for a time. And Jephthah was with worthless fellows. He kept company with a gang that would make the, pl- the Bloods and Crips blush. That's, those are famous gangs in, on the West Coast. Maybe you have heard of them here. Jephthah did not keep good company. And you recall that it was worthless fellows who supported Abimelech's hand to kill Gideon's sons. These were the circles that Jephthah was running in. But even in all of these ways, God uses Jephthah to draw a line to Jesus. Jesus was raised by a harlot, wasn't he? Or at least someone who was assumed to be an immoral woman. The talk of the town was that Mary had a child and that Joseph was not the father. Jesus was an outcast. His brothers and sisters drove him away. They called him crazy. They didn't want him to to hurt society. You remember that scene? They, come on, come on home, Jesus. They wanted to keep him under lock and key so that he wouldn't embarrass them. Oh, he was their brother, but they didn't want to own him as their brother. And Jesus was rejected. He was rejected by the ones he came to save. What does John 1 say? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And Jesus was homeless. He left his father's heavenly abode. And he says, the Son of Man has no place on which to lay his head. And Jesus was with worthless fellows, wasn't he? Forever unstained by the sin of others, he spent enough time eating with these tax collectors that he was shamed because of it. But in order to redeem a people made up entirely of worthless fellows, he would have to identify with them in his whole life. Look at verse 27. I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. So after Jephthah's history lesson, 
He assures the king of his innocence. The Ammonites did not have justice on their side to wage war against Gilead. Notice the language of I here. I, therefore, have not sinned against you. Notice the language of me and my land in, in verse 12. What do you have against me that you have come to fight me to fight against my land? An attack against Gilead is an attack against Jephthah, the man. The place that once rejected him was now his place of identity. Their fight becomes his fight. Their innocence becomes his innocence. Their land, his land. Likewise, Jesus identifies himself with the people that rejected him. He picks up our fight, doesn't he? Our fight against sin and evil becomes his fight, and he is victorious. We are always losing that fight in our own strength, but he is always winning that battle. Their land, our land of darkness, becomes his land, so that it would one day be a land full of light, full of righteousness. As it was unjust to go to battle against Jephthah, so now it is unjust for the world, the flesh, and the evil one to wage war against Jesus and his people. Not, the world has no just cause against Jesus. The world has no just cause against those who are in Christ. The ultimate penalty has been paid. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who is just and the justifier. The end of verse 27 says, The Lord... The judge decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So Jephthah not only appeals to, the, to his own innocence and to his people's innocence, but to the righteousness of the Lord as judge. Jephthah entrusts his just cause against the Ammonites to the judge over all, the judge of all the earth who will always do right. The battle which is about to begin, which we'll look at next week, will be a just war against the Ammonites. It was unjust for them to attack, but it will be just for the Israelites to defend and to take down the Ammonites. Likewise, Jesus entrusts his precious, innocent, righteous spirit to his Father. Into your hand I commend my spirit, he says. And the righteous Father, who is always righteous, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Christ's righteousness. Verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. We must not be hard-hearted to the saving work of Christ. The king of the Ammonites could not, be ta- could not be troubled by the real facts of history. He refuses to listen to Jephthah. Instead, he digs in his heels against the man, and then a war will ensue. Those who do not read history with the eyes of Christ will not have the Christ. A few centuries ago, there was a man, a Captain Mitchell, a very hard-hearted man. He was already married, but that did not stop him from looking at another woman. He had his eyes on a certain Susan Warren, who desired to move to America in the mid-1600s, and the Mitchells were her only ticket. And so Captain Mitchell and Mrs. Mitchell arranged an expedition to Maryland, And Mrs. Mitchell conveniently died in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Captain Mitchell, of course, was the lead suspect on the death of his wife. 
The captain forced Susan to lie with him, and soon she was found pregnant. He refused to marry Susan. She would plead with him to care for her, to care for their child. She even brought scripture to him. She reminded him of the Bible and said that he, as a Christian gentleman, should make things right. Captain Mitchell laughed it off, saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just a man and a pigeon. Still hardened, he mixed in a board of fashioned with a poached egg and forced Susan to eat it, that the child would die. And she died as well. Such a hardened man. This is the hardened heart of a man that refuses to hear Jesus' spirit-inspired word. Jesus has spoken to us through this text. Jephthah, being used by God, is pointing us to Christ as the historian, as the head of the world, as the head of the church, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has spoken clearly, who has spoken powerfully by his spirit. What will we do when we are faced with the real facts, with real history of God's word, of God's work, of God's revelation, of how God is working in our lives? Will we listen to his words? Or will we close ourselves off from his wisdom and grace? May we always pray to the one who knows us best that he would always soften our spirits, that he would never stop piercing our hearts with his spirit, with his word, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Let's pray. A gracious God, we need that transformative work that your spirit provides. We need to hear you. We need to hear you well, hear your word. We pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to see you more clearly. We thank you for this text in which you show us Christ. It's the one who is genuinely our head sufficiently our head, perfectly our head, and who explains you to us and us to ourselves, that we might know you and know eternal life in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.